You're listening to TIP. Hey, how's everyone doing out there? Today we've got our good friend Jesse Felder on the show. And Jesse comes with multiple decades of experience in the markets. He's the former founder of a multi-billion dollar hedge fund. And as you might expect, he always comes to the table with a tremendous amount of insights and ideas. Today we're talking about uh, big tech companies. And uh, Stig, what were some of the other topics that we covered on this show? We transition into a macroeconomic discussion. It seems like the central banks are currently looking to undo the quantitative easing, and it might lead to inflation. Now, this is a very interesting concept because if you feel that stocks and bonds are overvalued and you're holding cash, if we do see inflation, does that mean that you also need to diversify your cash, not holding US dollars, but also euro and yen perhaps? And what about this new currency, Bitcoin? That's all the rage right now. Is that a good way of diversifying the cash position? Jesse Felder doesn't think so. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. All right. So uh, we're really excited to have Jesse Felder back on the show. Jesse, welcome back to the Investors Podcast. Always such a pleasure to have you here. Thanks for having me, guys. You know, you, was it a couple of years ago, you guys turned me on to the whole podcast world. <laughs> I really didn't know much about it. And it's just awesome. And so it's a pleasure to be here with you guys again. Look at where we are now, Jesse. You got your own show and everything. It's awesome. And it was all inspired by you guys. <laughs> <laughs> So we wanted to chat with you in particular about FANG stocks to open up the discussion. We opened up this to our Twitter followers as well. We said, hey, we're bringing Jesse Felder on the show. They threw a lot of questions at us to ask you tonight. So talk to us about how you're seeing the FANG stocks. And before we do that, just tell our audience what FANG stocks are in case they don't know that terminology. Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. So the FANG stocks, I think the term, the acronym was coined by Jim Cramer. And it just stands for Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and Google, which is technically now Alphabet. So the, I guess the acronym doesn't work so well. But I also add Apple and NVIDIA into that. So you get a couple A's and a couple of N's in there. So yeah, that's, that's how I look at the FANG stocks is that those six, really. Awesome. And so Jim started talking about them because they were just you know taken off like a rocket ship. And when we talk about FANG stocks, you're of the opinion that they don't have much more to climb. So talk to our audience about this idea and uh, why you have that opinion. Well, really, uh, you know, I was reading Howard Marks's latest memo, and he, he talked about in every bull market, you get a group of stocks that become priced for perfection. And so I started looking at these stocks and said, obviously, it's the, it's the FANG stocks in this bull market. And when you look at them individually, so the way I look at valuations of stocks is not necessarily the company relative to the broader market, but I like to look at that stock's valuation relative to its own history. I include Apple in this, and people say, well, Apple's you know, not expensive relative to the, to the broader market, but Apple is actually very expensive relative to its own history. That's kind of what I'm talking about in terms of valuation. So I, I look at these stocks, and I see they're all almost across the board trading at their highest valuation relative to their own history in the last five, 10 years, if not more. And NVIDIA is a great example of this trades 15 times revenues, which is just absolutely insane. And at the peak of the dot-com mania, NVIDIA, 
traded at about seven, eight times revenues. And at that time, revenues were growing 100% year over year. Today, it trades at 15 times revenues. And revenue growth is 30%, I think 28% in the last quarter, and projected to grow 12% or maybe even flat in subsequent quarters. So revenue growth is much, much slower today than it was at the peak of the dot-com mania. And the valuation is twice what it was back then. So that's kind of what I'm talking about with these stocks, just trading at really high valuations, despite the fact that their growth is slowing, Apple's gross margins are falling. I mean, in almost every case, I could go stock by stock. Netflix is another great example. Free cash flow has plunged from 300 million positive to 2 billion negative. And even still, the stock trades at its highest valuation in its history. So it's, you know, these stocks are absolutely priced as if things could not get any better. So Jesse, let's specifically talk about the valuation of Netflix. So I just looked up the stock here and it looks like the price to sell is 7.6, price to earnings almost 200. And the reason why I ask this is because Netflix has gradually changed strategy and now they're looking to go into content creation. I guess to me, it doesn't sound like higher margins. If anything, that sounds rather expensive, but I guess my question also comes from an appreciation of knowing that you could be wrong and the market could be right. You know, you're absolutely right, Stig. When you look at Netflix, you know, back in the, you know, 10 years ago, when they were putting Blockbuster out of business, you could make the case that they're going to own the DVD, you know, business. And so, yeah, I'm willing to pay a high multiple because they're going to take all of that business from Blockbuster. Then they went to video on demand. You go, wow, this is a new market. and They're doing something brand new. And so maybe that does earn it a higher valuation and growth premium. But today, you're right. They're getting into content creation. And when you look at every single one of the company's competitors in content creation, they trade one to two times sales. <laughs> so, you know, then you have Netflix free cash flows plummeting. And the reason is because this content creation is very expensive and the return is, you know, very minimal and very hit or miss, right? You have some hits, you have some misses. And so cash flow goes up and down. It's deeply negative for them right now. And I don't know how you justify seven and a half times sales when you have Disney at two and a half or three times sales, which is, you know, best in the business. And Disney is an interesting example too, because they've decided to take all of their video you know, product away from Netflix and create a competing platform. So it's a very interesting situation Netflix finds themselves in right now. You know, the thing that I can't understand about the Netflix doing their own content is back in the day, you'd turn on your TV and you'd flip through the channels and try to see what was on and you'd give things kind of a try because you just had to. There wasn't like you could do on-demand TV. But now with on-demand, like when you go on the Netflix, you're looking for something specifically. You're not just perusing and seeing what pops onto the screen anymore. There was a lot of discovery that happened with these original shows that were maybe coming across the network. So I think that's a major problem for them as they're trying to, I mean, we all know why they're trying to do it. They're trying to get people to stay hooked on some type of program that's decent, that keeps them subscribed to the service. But I think that it's a harder sell than it used to be back in the day when you're just channel surfing than it is now because of the way on-demand TV works. Would you guys agree with that? Or do you see it a little differently? I absolutely agree. I, I, you know, I think in Netflix also, when they had the first mover advantage, you know, for a long period of time in the video on demand, you know, there was a great case. Everybody had to get Netflix. But now you have Disney creating their own platform. You have Amazon Prime, who, you know, has its own platform. HBO Go, 
you have Hulu, you have a lot of different platforms and a lot of different choices for people. And a lot of people, you know, who are well-placed in the media industry are talking about a price war on the horizon. And so I think that's another risk to Netflix. You know, something that I think a lot of people that just invest based off of the brand or they really don't, they're not a numbers person. This is how I would like to describe this for people as they're thinking about Netflix specifically. So if you bought one share of stock for $183 right now, you could expect the profit after an entire year of buying that $183 business to be 43 cents. That's what it was at the end of 2016. It looks like the past year, it's about a dollar. Let's just say best case scenario, it's a dollar. You're paying $183 to own a business that's going to give you $1 after a year. I wrote a blog post recently about this, and this goes to the broader market too, but you know, this was specifically in regards to NVIDIA, Facebook, stocks trading 10 times revenues or more. Back in 2001, kind of late 2001, I think, uh, Scott McNeely gave an interview to Bloomberg, and this was after his stock had you know, just gotten crushed. And he was talking about the valuation of Sun Micro at the peak of the dot-com mania. And just, I got to read you this quote because it's, it's perfect for what we're seeing today. It says that 10 times revenues to give you a 10-year payback, I have to pay you 100% of revenues for 10 straight years in dividends. That assumes <laughs> I can get that past my shareholders. That assumes I have zero cost of goods sold, which is very hard for a computer company. That assumes I have zero expenses, which is really hard with 39,000 employees. That assumes I pay no taxes, which is very hard. And that assumes that you pay no taxes on your dividends, which is kind of illegal. And that also assumes with zero R&D for the next 10 years, I can maintain the current revenue run rate. Now, having done that, would any of you like to buy my stock at $64 a share? Do you realize how ridiculous those basic assumptions are? You don't need any transparency. You don't need any footnotes. What were you thinking? Yeah. End quote. And so that's the NVIDIA today. That's Netflix today. It's Facebook today. All these companies that trade at very high price to sales ratios. And interestingly, at the peak of the dot-com mania, we had 29 of the S&P 500 components traded at 10 times revenues or greater. Today, we have 28. So it's a very, very similar situation, actually. You know, so we had a comment from an individual on Twitter that said, hey, are some of these prices justified because interest rates are a whole lot lower than they were back in 2000? What do you say to something like that? So I think the best quote that I've heard about this, the best way to think about this is there's an incredible dichotomy. What do low interest rates imply? Low interest rates imply very low growth. What justifies a high multiple of earnings? High growth. So Jim Grant said, you know, we have boom time equity valuations and depression era interest rates, right? So you have the bond market saying there is no growth. Then you have the stock market saying growth is off the charts. And so, you know, we could get into the math of it, but when you use a discounted cash flow model, you know, if you discount the discount rate, you lower the discount rate to one, two percent or whatever you want to lower it to, but you don't lower the growth rate in the discount cash flow model, you're making a massive mistake. And in fact, the Federal Reserve has written a paper on this, how every single cycle investors make this mistake. You cannot lower the discount rate without lowering the growth rate. When you lower both at the same time, it doesn't matter if you grow at 5% and discount at 5%, or grow at 10 and discount at 10, the valuation stays the same. I mean, it doesn't justify high equity valuations, although it does help explain it. Investors are desperate for returns. And so they've piled it you know, out on the risk curve to push junk bond prices way too high, equity prices way too high. And it's just a sign of desperation on the part of investors 
but it doesn't mean they're not making a great mistake in doing that. So let's talk more about valuations, Jesse. You know, here with with the FANG stocks, I've heard a lot of different arguments in terms of how to assess valuations. Because typically we'd be talking about this kind of cash flows at, as you talk about, like how much money is flowing back to the owners. Now you hear other valuation metrics like the networking effect for something like Facebook or the top line growth for something like Amazon. How much should we pay attention to these new valuation metrics? Also, given that these FANG stocks are impacting our lives in a way that perhaps you can argue we haven't seen before. Well, I mean, in every cycle, it's different in some respect. But the iron law of valuation, you know, is never different, right? You know, literally, you know, my friend John Hussman likes to say that any security is essentially that today's price is the discounted future cash flows. And so, you know, for a company like Amazon, to justify today's valuation, they have to be able to turn on the profits eventually. And when I look at the valuation of Amazon specifically, it's trading at its highest valuation in 10 years. And I just look at, you know, price to sales again, because there really is no income. So you, you can't look at a price earnings ratio. You look at a price to sales ratio, and at the same time, growth has been cut in half or by two thirds over the last 10 years. So the growth rate is falling dramatically. And you can see this in Amazon trying to get into other industries. The risk there is that Amazon now is drawing the interest of regulators in terms of antitrust. I talked to my friend Peter Atwater about this, and he says, you know, welcome to the backlash era. We're now seeing, you know, people around the world, this populist movie, people are tired of being taken advantage of, they're tired of being bullied. There's been a backlash towards politicians. There's been a very, very justified backlash towards sexual harassers. And that's not just a, you know, a trendy thing that's very, very justified. But I think we're also going to start seeing a backlash towards these companies that are taking advantage of, you know, Facebook and Google especially, but Amazon destroying the retail sector and destroying its competition has so much power, so much monopoly power that it's drawing a lot of antitrust interest. And if they were to start saying, I'm sorry, you cannot get into pharmacy medicine management, we will not let you enter these industries because you already have too much monopoly power, then the growth could decline dramatically. And then how do you justify you know, a sky high valuation. Yes, very interesting point you bring up about regulators because it seems at least so far not to be something that investors are too worried about. But obviously, if it will happen, if there will start to get regulated, this is something that we all need to consider in terms of our valuation. So where do you see this going in the future? Well, I think there's a very big difference to be made between the way investors feel about these companies and the way the general population feels about these companies. When you look at the way that politicians and, and the general population feels about these companies, USA Today did a poll and more than half of respondents said these companies have too much power and were afraid of their, you know, more than half of those people said we're afraid of how they could potentially use that power. And then now you have, you know, in Congress, there's a bipartisan effort. I think this is one of the things that could pass Congress very easily is new legislation to rein in the powers of these companies. Because it's not just liberals, you know, talking about this. You know, Steve Bannon came out and said that, you know, the Republican Party, at least kind of the Tea Party side of it, is going to make it their top priority to rein in these companies next year. 
So you have both sides of the aisle saying, you know, it was really the Russian influence in the elections that helped people to wake up to these uh, risks and to the unchecked power that these companies have. I think that was just a catalyst to understanding really, like I said, the power that they have. I recently just, I haven't published it yet, but I recently had a conversation with Roger McNamee, who was one of the first investors in Facebook. He convinced Mark Zuckerberg not to sell Facebook to Yahoo for a billion dollars. He also introduced Sheryl Sandberg to Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, the guy's been instrumental in Facebook's evolution as a company. And 18 months ago, he went to them and said to Sheryl and to Mark, said, this platform has become extremely dangerous. And it's because there is no oversight. You guys will allow anybody to come in and pay any amount of money to use what, what he calls your brain hacking platform, hacking people's brains to get them to consume what you want them to consume, buy what you want them to buy, vote for who you want them to vote for. And they both kind of have been rebuffing his efforts to get them to fix this. And now Congress is, you know, is, is realizing the dangers involved. You know, it was actually the chief Google ethicist who's now coming out and saying that this is a legitimate brain hacking. We have used these psychological principles of gambling and persuasion in order to create a platform that manipulates human brains more effectively than anything in history. And so I think that as people wake up to this, these companies, they're going to be more highly regulated or they're going to have to find a way to take greater control of their platforms. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Don't just ride the index. Seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. Our friends at Coriant provide wealth management services centered around you. Coriant's goal is to exceed your expectations and simplify your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. They are one of the largest integrated fee-only U.S. registered investment advisors, and Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. The teams at Coriant put the collective power of their expertise into building you the custom wealth, investment, and family office solutions that can help you reach your holistic financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, speak with an advisor today at Coriant.com. That's spelled C-O-R-I-E-N-T dot com. That's Corient dot com. When Rain Wilson had a great idea, he turned to AT&T Business. They assured him no matter how out there his idea may be, they had his back. So he came up with this, a talking pillow designed to put you to sleep, backed by a reliable network in the only network with built-in security controls. And thus, Sleep with Rain was a hit. Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. All right, back to the show. 
You know, one of the things I think about whenever you're using social media is confirmation bias and how powerful and how reinforcing it's like an echo chamber for people. You know, you like a couple things or you let's say you're a liberal or you're a conservative, pick whichever one you want. And you start liking things that are specific to that one thing. Well, next thing you know, the only thing you're receiving in your newsfeed are those things. And so it has this positive, maybe negative reinforcement to that's the only thing you're seeing. And now that people are getting so much of their news through this stuff, it's just the ultimate confirmation bias mechanism. So you called it brain hacking. I completely agree with you. And I think that most people aren't even aware of confirmation bias. And so how can you set up your feed? so that you're not being susceptible to something like this. I mean, it is a major concern. I think it's something that I think a lot of people need to think about. You know, that's a great question. I think that social media, these companies, Twitter, and I'm, I'm as guilty as anyone on Twitter. I love Twitter. I'm an addict, I, you know, confessed addict. But I think social media is just not the ideal platform to get most of your news from. I use it as my go-to source. But I also read, you know, a bunch of the major media outlets, which, you know, have to double check their sources. They have, you know, all those types of things. So I read the Financial Times, Wall Street Journal, New York Times. I mean, I think you have to broaden. You just can't get all of your news from social media because it is so unreliable at times. When you have one little preconceived notion and you start liking a few things and now it's just, it goes off on like a total tangent and that's all you're thinking about. Yeah, absolutely. And they're not all legitimate sources either. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's a lot of different people with a lot of different interests out there trying to shape public opinion. So when we think about all this, this is from an investing standpoint, positive, negative, continues to exist for more years because it's not at a breaking point. You know, one of the things that I was looking at, Jesse, was when you look at each one of these companies top line, the top line's still growing. I mean, it's definitely not growing like it used to, like you'd pointed out. But it's still growing. And these things are definitely being traded off the top line and not the bottom line. So if we expect the top line to continue to grow and to continue to expand, should we expect the price to kind of go with it until that breaks? That's possible. But we might not know about the risks of the top line until well after the fact. You know, it was interesting for me to talk to Roger because I, I said, you know, what are the biggest risks to this company? He goes, you know, investors in Facebook and Google should be praying for much tighter regulation right now. Because if Washington doesn't regulate, because they're not going to regulate themselves because it hurts the top line too much. If they don't get regulated, then people are going to start revolting from these platforms. And they're going to start realizing I'm being manipulated and I don't like being manipulated. And I don't like my data being sold to the highest bidder. And, you know, regardless of who that is, as investors, we should hope that they're going to get regulated because that's going to make them better corporate citizens. You know, Scott Galloway also makes a great point. In business school, one of the case studies they use is Johnson & Johnson and the Tylenol scare. And, you know, when Tylenol pills, you know, had killed a few people, there was a huge scare about Tylenol. What did Johnson & Johnson do? They pulled every bottle off of every shelf on the planet. We are going to protect our customers at all costs. Right. That is, you know, business school 101. When you have a crisis, you literally just shut it down. You do everything it takes to make it right. And what's scary, I think, for investors of these companies is Facebook's not doing that. Facebook is still allowing, you know, we're going to auction off brain hacking to the highest bidder. We're not going to change our business practices and, and nothing's changing. And so they're not 
taking that lesson to heart. And so I think as an investor, that's a huge risk. People would have so much more faith in the platform with turning over their data and turning over their lives to Facebook and Google if they started showing those types of behaviors. Like, look, we put your interests first. And we're going to make sure you are not manipulated, that you are not, you know, that would be a go a long, long way to giving people confidence into still using the platforms. I look at all those things as rapidly growing risks to their underlying business models, really. Okay, Jesse, so this is the last question I have about the FANG stocks. And this is also the question I've been looking most forward to asking because I kind of knew that there would be some kind of bashing. So let me ask this counter question. If you had to hold one of the FANG stocks for at least a decade, you couldn't sell it, you have to hold it for a decade. Which stock would it be and why? Yeah, that's tough. You know, so for me, I want to own stocks that I think are very cheap, out of favor, classic value. My favorite way to think of it is the way Jim Rogers put it, which is, I want to wait until I see $5 lying on the ground and all I have to do is pick it up. Like, it's that obvious. And I don't really see any of these stocks as being that $5 lying on the ground right now. But I think for me, it would probably be between Apple and Alphabet. I think those two have legitimate moats to their business that are you know, probably more proven than any of the others. And the, and the valuation of Apple is obviously more reasonable than the others. So, Interesting that you should mention Apple. And you know, reading through their financial statements, it seems to me that they are perhaps too reliant on the iPhone. can't remember the exact number, but it's something like 70 or 80% of the revenue that comes from iPhone. So as an investor, even though that this is the biggest market cap in the world, quickly approaching a trillion dollars, should we be concerned that consumer preferences might simply change? I really do think that's a legitimate risk to Apple. I mean, the thing about all these companies is people don't remember a time before the iPhone. They don't remember a time before Facebook. But the history of technology is that, I mean, somebody had a great tweet recently. It was a cover of Forbes 10 years ago. Can, will anybody ever be able to chip away at Nokia's ownership of the cell phone market? <laughs> and this was 10 years ago. And, you know, so there's always a king of technology, but it changes. You know, it doesn't seem like it changes very rapidly, but it does. Every 10 years, there's a, it seems like there's a new king. And, you know, for me, I am an Apple fan, totally sucked into the ecosystem. I, I was just looking at Google Trends. You look for searches for a feature phone. And if, what's a feature phone? It does talk, text, and music. That's it. And feature phones, I think, could be the next big thing in mobile devices because people need to be able to get away from the social media, get away from the notifications. There's so many more studies coming out that these things make us depressed. The more time, the more notifications pop up on your cell phone, the more frustrated and angst is built up inside of you. And social media does the same thing. And so you know, people want breaks from these things. And so I think that is maybe a risk to Apple. I don't know. I mean, they have such a wonderful ecosystem and they do have a strong moat that will protect their business. They'll always be fans of the iPhone. But for me, I think there are risks. Wow. That's a great story. I'm glad you shared that. All right. So Jesse, let's transition into talking a little bit about something you were hitting on earlier, which was inflation and growth and intrinsic values when you're doing discount models. Because I think that this is something that a lot of people are wanting to hear more from you on. So 
what would you say as you're looking at this moving forward into the next 10 years, what are you looking at for a growth rate? Like, what do you think is reasonable? Gosh, you know, again, my friend John Hussman has done some really interesting work here. And it really depends on where you are in the cycle. When you have 4% unemployment, there's just not a lot of potential left in the economy to create a ton of new jobs. And that's a lot of the times where growth comes from. You look at you know periods of really good growth and you start with a high unemployment rate and then you know the jobs take care of the rest. You guys had Eric Cinnamon on the podcast recently, and Eric has been writing about you know inflationary pressures building you know here in the United States. At least you know for me, it's more interesting from his bottom up perspective. You know, he's tracking and listen. I don't know how he does it. All three hundred conference calls a quarter, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And when he does all that, he's hearing like you know wage inflation becoming a big problem for these companies. Four percent unemployment. It makes a lot of sense. The only time, you know, real interest rates were held this low for this long was during the mid to late 60s. And what was the experience after that? It was inflation just took off. And, you know, I think there's a lot of pent up inflation, wage pressures building and things. And, you know, we still have a Fed funds rate at, you know, 1% and change. I think it's very possible the Fed is far behind the curve. Wage inflation is going to take off. There's a great stat today that I tweeted. Japanese beer brewers just raised prices for the first time in 10 years. We're starting to see wage pressures in Japan, you know, the epicenter of deflation. And so if deflation is potentially ending in Japan, we're starting to see wage inflation there. This is a global phenomenon. And if we start to see inflation around the world, all of these central banks are going to find themselves so far behind the curve and have to, you know, raise interest rates rapidly to to try and play catch up. So it's a very interesting time. I mean, so when we talk about what does that mean for people that are listening to this and they hear, you know, if let's say that that is a true statement and that happens, what happens if they have to start raising interest rates quickly like that? Well, the first thing I think about is if you justify high valuations with low interest rates, <laughs> your premise is immediately evaporated by higher, higher interest rates. I don't think that means much in the minds of a lot of bulls today. But when you look at, you know, junk bond yields in Europe at, you know, less than 3%, you know, companies have been able to borrow at incredibly low interest rates. You have, you know, junk bond yields here in the United States at 5%. These low interest rates have enabled a whole army of zombie companies to stay alive. And that's you know, kind of prolonged the cycle and prevented a real washout of businesses. If you have been financing your business at, you know, three, four, five percent for the last 10 years, and all of a sudden you got to refinance at six, seven, eight percent, those zombie companies are toast. And you're going to have a new credit cycle where defaults start rising at a corporate level and, you know, then spreads start widening. And that's, you know, not good for risk assets of any sort, including equities. Yeah, that's, I mean, this has been the story for so long that we've been talking about is, you know, how much longer can the Fed do this? Now, something that I find really quite interesting is when you go back and you look at the balance sheet of the Bank of England, the ECB, the US, and Japan. And when you look at the balance sheet and you look at the QE that's been conducted and you look at the time whenever the US stopped doing its QE and then the ECB picked up 
And you look at that transition point, we had a big correction in the markets here in the US back in 2015. You go back, I think it was in 13, 2013, was it? 2012, I can't remember. You saw another similar event where basically the quantitative easing was swapped and you saw a big correction in the market. And this is when the ECB just started doing some QE. Right now, you, you turn on the news and you see guys like Ray Dalio that are saying, hey, the central bankers are done. They're going to start pulling this back come 2018. They're not going to be doing the QE like they've been doing in the past. And I'm really curious to see how that plays out and whether that's even a true statement. That's what Ray's saying. The Fed has obviously stopped, but the ECB still has it turned on full throttle. So are you hearing anything different? Are you seeing that the ECB is going to start pulling back on some of their uh, quantitative easing efforts? Is that going to be something that we see a major transition in 2018? I think they're going to have to. I think, you know, they're running out of bonds to buy. You know, they're starting Japanese own a ton of, you know, a huge percentage, more than 50% of their own bond market. And, you know, ECB is running up against their constraints of the bonds that they're allowed to buy. And so they're going to have to start tapering. But it's also, you know, the inflationary phenomenon. And this is very, very interesting to me because I talked to Kirill Sokoloff about this recently and William White, who was chief economist at the BIS. We talked about this same topic that, um, you know, it turns out quantitative easing was actually deflationary, right? Because it allowed for a massive amount of debt creation. When you pile up all this debt, it reduces the amount companies can spend or consumers can spend. And so it actually slows things down and it's a deflationary impact. And I think that's what we've learned during this cycle. So that when you reverse QE, that's potentially an inflationary impact. And so I think that's something that a lot of people aren't thinking about, that if QE was deflationary, undoing QE or tapering QE by all these central banks could potentially be inflationary, then what do they do? Then they have to, you know, obviously raise interest rates rapidly to play catch up. All right. So say that we don't want to be invested in stocks or in bonds, whether or not we believe it's because the interest rate is going up, we just don't see any kind of yield. So basically, we just want to hold cash. Now, how do we hold cash? Should that just be in US dollar or should we divide that up into call it USD, yen, euro, perhaps pounds as well? Even though that some of these currencies starts to look more vulnerable than they have in the past. What are your thoughts on that, Jesse? That is a great question. And I am you know, bearish on the dollar. I think we started a new bear market for the dollar. And you know, to me, it's very simple. Look at the way the federal deficit is going. And this is potentially the first time in modern history where the federal deficit is widening during an economic expansion. And that's potentially a big problem. That's saying, you know, this entitlement spending and stuff, every economic expansion we've had, you know, tax revenues grow and things are great for the federal government. That's not happening right now. So that's actually really worrisome. And, you know, the federal deficit is only going to widen. And if you look at a chart of the dollar and the deficit, it's very highly correlated, right? The better the U.S. federal government's finances are, the better the dollar does. And, you know, the worse the deficit widens, the, the worse the dollar does. And then you also look at, you know, the Japanese yen is very, very cheap relative to the dollar. You look at things like purchasing power parity or, you know, like the Big Mac index, you know, and the, the yen is very cheap. And so if Japan is going to see an end to their deflationary scenario and the central bank is going to have to start to tighten. The yen is going to do very, very well against the dollar. 
I think the euro probably will do well against the dollar. You just look at you know relative central bank policy. The Fed has been tightening for years now, really, and the ECB has been loosening for the last few years. When that changes, you know, and the ECB has to start tightening, and the Fed goes, "Oh no, we've maybe started a new recession." Fed has to start easing again. The dollar is just going to tank against the euro, against the yen. But honestly, you know, I think you mentioned Ray Dalio earlier. Ray said everybody should have at least five percent of their portfolio in gold. And you know, when the dollar does poorly, gold does well. And so, if you're bearish on the dollar, per se, you have to be bullish on gold. And so, financial assets are extremely expensive. We have bonds and stocks. I can't remember which which brokerage firm came out recently. A research house came out and showed that since 1900. The combination of stocks and bonds has never been this highly valued in history. So you, they're both extremely expensive. So financial assets are something that, you know, there's a lot of risk there. I think real assets are something you're going to want to own over the next 10 years. And so that to me is real estate, commodities, gold, potentially tips, treasury inflation protected securities. My favorites there are real estate and gold. I think those two probably in an inflationary environment do the best. So, I mean, a lot of these things tie in together, right? If the dollar goes down, that creates inflation. And so it's really kind of a holistic view over the next 10 years that I think real assets will do better and gold will probably do well because the dollar goes down over the next few years. If interest rates are going up, wouldn't that be a concern for real estate though? Because the prices are going to go down? It could. When you think of residential real estate, but when you look at investable real estate, it's mostly commercial. Yeah. And the nice thing about commercial is when there's inflation, they can raise rents. And so, yes, real estate prices are very, very high. I agree with you. So maybe that's not the best area, but they do have pricing power in an inflationary environment. So Gotcha. So the next question obviously becomes, because this is the hottest thing that everyone's talking about, and you, you are already smiling because you know where this is going. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what are your thoughts on that thing? <laughs> yeah. Bitcoin is a classic mania. Uh, it's a classic mania. And I think it's just so fascinating to watch it play out in real time. And I, I've done a lot of research on it. And I understand. And every time I say this, people say, you don't understand what Bitcoin is. I understand what Bitcoin is. And I was talking with a friend of mine today who's a reporter for Quartz because he was asking me about this. And, you know, I think Bitcoin is a technology. Blockchain is a new technology. And the blockchain, possibly has a lot of potential value. But if there's any lesson from technology, it's whatever's great today, there's somebody's going to come up with a better version of it tomorrow. And so, I mean, that's the simplest thing I think about in terms of Bitcoin. Somebody could create a better Bitcoin tomorrow. You know, central banks are talking about creating their own Fedcoin and, you know, these types of things. But fundamentally, you know, the argument for owning Bitcoin is there's only, can only be 21 million coins created and this was limited quantity. But there is no limit to the number of digital currencies or cryptocurrencies that can be created. And so I don't understand at all why Bitcoin should have any value over something very, very minimal, because the higher the value, the harder it is to become a medium of exchange. The Wall Street Journal wrote about this last week that you know, a lot of companies are trying to use it and accept Bitcoin. But people don't want to spend it so long as they think the price is going up. So it actually works against itself, the volatility. And there's another point to be made, too, that my friend Fred Hickey made in his latest newsletter, which is now the IRS considers every purchase to be made with Bitcoin a sale that has to be you know, 
we have to pay capital gains tax. You don't have to do that on your dollars. Yeah, I and think so that's a that's a big that's concern. Am- yeah, a lot of these companies are saying, okay, we can't accept Bitcoin anymore because we don't want to be responsible for reporting to the IRS. And so there's so many issues with it and so many problems. It's modern day tulip mania in my mind. Hmm. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, do you ever wonder how investors like Peter Thiel have Roth IRAs worth billions? Many do more than just save a portion of their income, invest it in the stock market, and cross their fingers and hope it grows enough to retire on. The secret is they use something called a self-directed IRA, which has all the tax advantages we love, but with a twist. Instead of being stuck with stocks, bonds, and cookie cutter options, a self-directed IRA with New Direction Trust Company allows you to invest your retirement savings in what you know and what you're passionate about. From real estate to startups to gold and silver, there are nearly unlimited investment options. You could even finance and set the terms of a loan. You name it, NDTCO will help you fund it. We're not saying you'll be the next Peter Thiel, but we're not not saying that either. Because his secrets are now your secrets. Check out New Direction Trust Company and self-directed IRAs today at ndtco.com and unlock the potential of your retirement savings. That's ndtco.com. Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah, so I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news. And each day you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one. And I actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. All right, back to the show. See, I'm, I'm a fan of it. I really am. But I think that there's, I, I have some concerns, obviously. And I think that there's concerns of it going into the mainstream adoption. I think that's a lot of risk, a whole lot of risk if you're, if you're going down this path. And I think the point that you just made, I think, is a huge point with it being treated as if it's a security, because companies are not going to want to accept this if it's being treated as a security for all those reasons. I think the other concern is really from the government side of it. You know, how is the government going to play with this as it continues to mature? The part that you had mentioned there, Jesse, about people not wanting to spend it because the value is going up, I think that that has a potential to even compound the interest into it even more. And I think that it has a potential to drive a network effect 
maybe even a bull case for it based on that. But man, there's a lot of there's a lot of smart people in this space. There's a lot of coins trying to beat Bitcoin. So like even though you own Bitcoin today, there's a lot of ones that are very high in market cap that are trying to rise up in there. And man, I think if you're in this space, it has a potential huge upside if it actually does become some type of world currency. Yeah, I think it's an interesting my friend Stephen Bregman, Horizon Kinetics, I mean, brilliant, brilliant thinkers there. Some of my favorite guys to talk to and read their thoughts. They've been in Bitcoin for a long time. They're very early in it. And the way they look at it, I think, makes the most sense that if you look at it as a lottery ticket, as that if it does take over a portion of the you know, global transaction you know, market, then it's worth a ton of money. But I think you know, for people to put any more than, you know, one, two percent of the portfolio in it is taking on way too much risk. And what you're seeing today, you know, are the classic mania signs of people selling their homes and putting the all of the money into Bitcoin. Yes. You know, Neil Kashkari, the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Minnesota, said somebody stopped. He tweeted this. Somebody stopped him in line at LAX when he's trying to get on a plane and said, what do you do for living? Oh, I'm the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Minnesota and said, well, I just hold out $35,000 of my home equity to put it in Bitcoin. What do you think? You know, and it's like <laughs> you know, those types of, of decisions are classic signs of a mania. Yeah. And so people, most people are not looking at it like Steve Bregman and Horizon Kinetics are looking at it. That's exactly what Stick and I have been saying on the show is, you know, it's almost like a venture capital play. You know, if you're in this, you're kind of looking at it as like the odds of this turning up are probably... 20%, 10%, but the upside is absolutely astronomical. It's huge. And so like if you're throwing more than five, we were saying 5%, if you're taking more than 5% of your net income, and it really depends on the person, like you know, 5% for Jesse might be different than 5% for Preston, which is different than 5% for Stig, because it's really about, you know, if you lose all of that, is that going to impact your life? That, that is actually a great point. And that's what I tell people about trading, about anything, you know, it's- Create yourself a nice diversified portfolio of stocks, bonds, and real assets, which I think most people overlook. And it can be a third, a third, a third. It'd be very, very simple. And then if you want to speculate in the stock market, you want to learn how to trade, you want to you know, speculate in Bitcoin, take as much money as you're willing to lose. And I'm talking about you know, in trading stocks. You know, Don't put more money into that than you're willing to lose because even just in learning how to trade stocks, if you read Market Wizards, one of my favorite books, these are the most brilliant minds in the business. And almost every single one of these guys has gone, you know, completely wiped out their trading account as they're learning how to be good traders, as they're learning how to be good investors. A lot of times, more than once, you know, two, three times, they wipe out their trading accounts. But they look at it like, and I love this term, tuition at the school of trading. You know, it's okay to lose money. As long as you learn something from it. And so for, I think most people put the money in Bitcoin, but don't put more than you're willing to lose. So but look at it that way. And I think that's something that also Paul Tudor Jones, you know, preaches is think about your risk first. Don't think about how much money I could make. Think about, you know, the risk first. Absolutely. That's some sound advice right there. I was just going to say, I, I don't know how environmentalists are not already completely up in arms about the whole Bitcoin thing. You know, Bitcoin just by itself, excluding the other cryptocurrencies, the blockchain behind is already using more energy than Nigeria. And if it does get bigger 
the, you know, the estimates are it could use more energy than Japan. And so, you know, for me, the energy usage too is also, that's just massive and costly. And I don't understand how you could be an environmentalist and a Bitcoin investor at the same time, because they are mutually exclusive at this point. Great point, Jesse. So I would like to bring up the concept of trust here, because whenever we're talking about money in the conventional sense, you know, it, it doesn't really have any type of utility. The only reason why it's worth something is because we agree it's worth something. You trust the system. You trust that you can actually get milk or whatever you're trying to buy for your dollars. So how does trust play into this discussion about the validity of Bitcoin, in your opinion? That is a really good question also. And you know, I think Bitcoin has yet to be really tested in terms of trust. I worry about the platforms we saw the other day when there's some higher volatility that you know Coinbase went down, you know, so you couldn't be traded as the biggest trading platform for it. There was an accident where a bunch of Bitcoins were wiped out <laughs> because somebody hacked a platform by accident. You know, for me, I just come back to, you know, gold has been money for 5,000 years. And no matter what, you can take a gold coin and somebody will trade you something for it because it's been an accepted in society for a very, very long period of time. And every time, every single time throughout history, when money has been debased to a great extent, people have fled to gold. And that's just a historical fact. And so I think if you're looking for something that is, has a historical you know, basis in protecting you against money creation, protecting you against those types of things, you know, gold is really the answer. Bitcoin is very interesting to me, and I, I really do sympathize with the underlying story of it. The lack of faith in central banks who've created these bubbles and printed a ton of money. You know, I mean, it's something that I've written about for a long, long period of time. So I, I do sympathize with it. But I, I just think there are too many problems in the fundamental case for owning it, too many inconsistencies that it's hard to really put much more faith in it than looking at it as an option or as a lottery ticket, like I said. Yeah, I would have to agree with you on the fact that there's no incentive. If, if anything, they're incentivized to manipulate their monetary baseline to manufacture growth. And so for me, it's really exciting to know that there's technology that's out there that could potentially fix that or to peg that on a global level. And that's where I know Stig is also very excited about the technology that it could potentially do that, but it's just a matter of what is this going to actually look like as it shakes out? Because there's so many unknowns. There's so much risk. I mean, you don't even have to start going into all the risks to know that there's a lot of risk in this. And I think that anybody that's going into this space has to come into it with their eyes wide open to know and not just to buy into the narrative like this is going to replace everything. And they have to really do the due diligence and a lot of hard work to try to understand all those different variables if they're in the space. Absolutely. And, you know, I think... When you think about how do you rein in the central banks, there's a reason why there was a gold standard to begin with. So that central bankers couldn't print money because it had to be backed by gold. And when central banks after World War II, you know, one by one went off the gold standard, you know, that was the beginning of all these problems. Now, I'm not an expert on this, but, you know, Neil Howe's book and his thesis, The Fourth Turning, you know, brings up some very, very interesting points about where we are in this cycle. And 
you know, I, I really do think at some point, if the monetary policy gets so out of control and we do start seeing hyperinflation potentially in some governments, that these central banks will be reined in and they will have to be forced to, you know, just like Germany did, you know, go back to a currency that's backed by something. It's a lot of, you know, speculation, but when you look at the trajectory of the US, you know, federal spend, you have $100 trillion of unfunded liabilities. You know, how much will is there at Congress to reduce Medicare, to reduce Social Security, and do these things? You vote for that, and you're going to get voted right out of office. And so there's a lot of people who have hypothesized that you know, those things will never be reformed, and the only way they're going to get paid for is by printing a ton of money. And so, yes, I do understand and it makes a lot of sense when I own something like Bitcoin, own something like gold, that protect them against that scenario. Hopefully, you know, someday we're going to hit some type of a crisis that forces people to rethink these central bank policies and to rein them in and take away these, the powers that they have abused. Very interesting discussion. All right, Jesse, such an honor to have you back on the show. We always have so much fun when you come on. If people want to learn more about you, where can they look you up? I try and, and write on a regular basis at the Federal Report. I put up blog posts there. I'm really active on Twitter. I try and, you know, I do a ton of reading and research and I tweet most of the stuff. It's just at Jesse Felder and uh, follow me on Twitter. And, it's, you know, like I said, I put up most of the stuff that I read that I find interesting. I'll tweet it out. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jesse, for coming on the podcast. All right. So this is the point in the show where we play a question from the audience. And this question comes from Amit. Hi, Preston and Stig. My name is Amit. I'm from New Zealand. Thanks so much for putting together the great show. And my wife and I are really big fans. Uh, my question is, what do you think will happen with the Bitcoin price if the CME offers Bitcoin futures? Thanks and keep up the great work. All right, so Amit kind of cheating here by answering this one because the the futures started uh, this past uh, Monday, actually Sunday night. So it's been active for a couple days now. It, we're recording this on a Wednesday, so it's been about three days since the uh, futures went active. And what we actually saw was the price spiked up and it's plateaued and now it's coming off a little bit. But I think it's still really early to have kind of any idea what kind of impact this is going to have into the long term. Before the uh, futures opened up, um, I was talking with Pierre Richard about this and I told him that, you know, for me, it was a 50-50 split as to whether this was going to make the price pop or make the price go down. I think a lot of people on Wall Street, my personal opinion, having friends on Wall Street are very skeptical with crypto and, and Bitcoin in general. So I think a lot of them are anxious to short Bitcoin and to sell it short. But I think that a lot of them aren't stupid either, and they've seen the price go wild for the last year. And I think a lot of people are hesitant to step in front of that freight train. So I think what you might see with this is if you do see the price start to pull back, which I think is a very real possibility at this point because the price movement has been just going wild. And I mean, on a, on a tear. And so I think if Wall Street does see this start to pull back and start getting a little bit of momentum in a pullback, I think you could see the futures market really heavily compound on that and really cause a pretty abrupt pullback, you know, maybe even down to like 5,000 bucks or something like that. But there's no way of really knowing. I mean, that's the thing with futures. I'm curious to hear what Stig thinks. For some of the listeners that might be, yeah, like we heard futures, but, but what is it really? So I think before we talk about Bitcoin, 
perhaps the easiest way to think about a future is to think about a typical commodity. It could be something like oil. So if I'm an oil producer and I plan to produce, you know, 10 barrels of oil in, you know, six months time, I can log in that price already. So it's actually a very convenient mechanism for a lot of producers in terms of uh, of budgeting and, and scheduling, knowing that you have that price. And obviously the price could go up and obviously you'll be paying an opportunity cost for the price going up, but you can also make the, the counter argument. So it's basically a question about certainty. So what's going on with Bitcoin futures? Well, one thing I would like to add here is that a Bitcoin future is settling cash. So it's not like you actually see when, when you buy a future with physical delivery for someone like oil, you actually own that oil. That's not the case. So it's all settled in cash. And, and basically what that means, just to give you an example, is that if you buy one Bitcoin contract and a contract is composed of five Bitcoins. So uh, right now, here's the, the, the middle of December, you know, the price is around 16,000. So it will be around $80,000 for one contract. You would have what's, what's called a tech. It's basically just a fancy way of talking about the minimum fluctuation. That would be $5 per Bitcoin. So if you have a tick up, that would be $25. So that means that if you are having the long position of that contract, you will be gaining $25. And then your counterpart, you'll be losing $25. Probably doesn't come as a surprise that most people are bull. If I look at the future with expiration date in March, middle of March 18, it's trading up 17,280 right now. It's very interesting to, to see what happens when the money is in the hands of the bull. If you see a, a transfer of wealth, if that actually materializes, or as Preston talked about, if you see the opposite, perhaps. I do want to point out again that you know, this is not like an ETF. It's, you know, it's, it's not like an ETF where you will buy that ETF in the S&P 500 and then they will actually go into the market and then buy those 500 securities in the S&P 500. That's not how it works. This is all cash-based and it's, it's kind of like a separate market. You can now pour a lot more money into the market, but it's not like you would necessarily hold Bitcoin, which would clearly move the market a lot more. For the new futures that you see, I expect almost all of them if not all of them to be cash-based, but I would definitely pay a lot of attention if it's not. The thing that I guess that I find interesting with the future side is the if the derivatives are now stood up, that now opens the door to ETFs, which then adds more and more credibility to all of this. And I think that for the US to step in and the government to step in and shut down exchanges, I think that that becomes so much harder the more reinforced all of this becomes with derivatives and ETF-type products later on. I'm kind of curious to hear what you think about that, Stig. I thought a lot about that, Preston, because you're starting to see a lot of regulation. And, and regulation is something that we typically look at as that is bad, at least for the price of, of whatever, like if this is a stock and there's, there's a lot of red tape, you know, it, it might limit the, the growth of that company and whatnot. You know, whenever it comes to something like Bitcoin, I actually see it primarily as a good thing. And if you look at the first regulation that you had about Bitcoin, that was in Japan in 2014 after the exchange Magox was hacked, the most welcoming country in the world. 
for Bitcoin, that's Japan is probably because they're not more getting used to it. And also, if you regulate it, you legalize it, you accept it in one shape or form. And I think that's very important. So if you set up futures and perhaps even that link directly to an exchange, you will need to have to build a system around it. You will need to have something that's public, that's going in and, and handling it. And that just provides a lot of legitimacy to a lot of investors, not just private investors, but also institutional investors. So, so what would happen if we see like an entire ban? I mean, because that's definitely a, a, a different concern. It's actually very interesting now, uh, currently being in, in, in Korea. And one of the reasons why the Korea is one of the biggest markets in the world, and we've seen all this volatility lately in this market specifically, is because China, you know, regulated and said, you closed down exchanges a few months ago. And, and basically, that doesn't mean that people stop buying Bitcoins. It just means that they're going to Korea and Japan. I'm not trying to sell the story that you can't just ban it. It's just with something like Bitcoin, it's just a lot more difficult than for so many other things. You know, like that's impossible. That's impossible to ban it globally. Even if you get the, you know, the biggest countries in the world and they all ban it together, kind of like the the sequencing that you've been seeing with the ECB, the Fed, and the Bank of Japan recently with the way they've been doing monetary policy. I mean, it's totally sequenced. They could maybe come together and say, hey, we got to shut this down because this is getting crazy. But at the end of the day, you still have small countries all around the world that would not ban it and it would be allowed. Now, I think that that would be the price would get punished in the short term, but Bitcoin continues to march along. The protocol continues to operate. I guess for me, I'm looking at it more from like, what happens when this thing hits a market cap of $5 trillion? Does the Fed start interjecting with elected officials to start saying, hey, this thing's evil, and they start spinning it from a political and media standpoint to try to really manipulate the markets and then try to shut down the exchanges? I think all of that is a real possibility, but I think that it's a much harder possibility the longer they wait. And the more that the finance industry wraps itself around all of this, which is what we're seeing right now. I mean, that's my opinion. I'd be, I would love to hear somebody say something, you know, a good, strong counter argument to that, because I, I mean, for me, it's a huge risk and it's something that I really want to fully understand. I just haven't really met anyone that I think can really make a strong argument around why that's going to happen. I hear a lot of people say that that's going to happen, but then they have no substance behind the opinion, you know, like there's no substance on why or how they're going to do that after so much is kind of, you know, I, I don't know. Shoot us some good articles. If people are listening to this and you've got good articles, please send them our way because we're really curious about that risk. And I think it's a big risk and it's a concern, but I just, I don't have any substance behind it. So we'd like to hear that. So Amit, we love these kind of questions. This is really fun for us. It's very speculative, but I think it's an interesting topic for everyone to be aware of. For submitting your question, going to asktheinvestors.com and recording your question there. We're going to give you a free course on our TIP Academy website. Some of the courses on there are paid. We're going to give you our intrinsic value course Stig and I had uh, prepared. It's 18 lessons long, and we're really excited to be able to give this to you. And thank you so much for being a part of our community and asking such an awesome question there, Amit. Guys, that was all that Preston and I had for this week's episode of The Investors Podcast. We see each other again next week. Thanks for listening to TIP. To access the show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. To get your questions played on the show, go to asktheinvestors.com and win a free subscription to any of our courses on TIP Academy. 
This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making investment decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the TIP Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting. 